I will read our scripture for today. It is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23 to 11, 1. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father, that is our prayer, is that we would imitate Christ, uh, that we would be the body of Christ, his hands and feet as we move about San Francisco with our wealth and possessions. You have blessed us um, to varying amounts, but all of us have been blessed and we want to spend that blessing for your glory and for the good of others. And so would you help us discern how to do that, to learn from Paul, who was so faithful to you and faithful to the church uh, who was so zealous for the lost, um, was willing to adjust his life radically from space to space so that some people might hear and respond to the gospel. Would we imitate Paul in that way? Uh, we love you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. An article was published a few weeks ago in The Atlantic about the decline of cursive education in America. It was removed from the Common Core curriculum in 2010, cursive was, and now that's starting to show in colleges and workplaces as those people uh, graduate and move on in life. Now, in one sense, who really cares about the loss of cursive? Our children will grow up using typed communication almost exclusively. We also live in a less formal society, so even in those few situations where writing is required, cursive is never required. The thing is, though, learning cursive is actually developmentally beneficial for children. It forces kids to change how they hold their pencils, to hold it lightly, to move quickly. It improves fine motor skills and increases wrist strength. Uh, the lack of stop-start has been shown to help students with certain disabilities like dyslexia. Cognitively, children have to think less when writing cursive because they don't have to pick up their pencils with every letter so that writing begins to approach the speed of thinking. It becomes less laborious and you can focus on thinking more than working. It prepares children to take notes on the fly while listening. Lots of people confuse teaching cursive with teaching social etiquette. And so you have uptight educators on one side who demand cursive because they think it's about being proper and respectable. And then you have modern educators who think it's a waste of time and distraction from real learning. But both are missing the point. 
Because while most of us adults have thrown aside all the rules and have settled into our own hybrid print cursive writing style, each of us sort of combined the two in our own way. But by that point, our brain has been powerfully shaped and the pen becomes an extension of our hand, part of it. God's specific instructions, his law in the Bible around money and possessions is like learning cursive. They are meant to shape and mold us, developing in us godly virtue so that we no longer need rules. Paul talks in Galatians about how before Christ, the law was a tutor, keeping us safe and upright until the arrival of faith. So Galatians 3, 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So God's instruction in the Old Testament, all the rules around tithing, Sabbaths, debt release, property ownership, uh, leveret marriage, summarized by God's two great commandments to love him and love others. These were and are external rules meant to shape us into givers again, to protect us and teach us the ways of God. The design, though, is for these rules to fall away, not because they're no longer true, but because we no longer need them. This is the freedom offered by Christ last week in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, Jesus called us to go after a greater righteousness than the Pharisees, a greater because it's not about our compliance with more and more rules, but because it's the free expression of a transformed heart. So that everything we hold, including our money and possessions, are just extensions of our souls, tools by which we express our deepening love for God and genuine love for others. Maybe we keep some of the rules, like how most of us write in a kind of cursive, but not for the rules sake, because it's the most natural way to live. The way of Jesus is the good life. It's the life of peace and joy. It's not that money doesn't matter anymore, of course. We still have to handle money but we handle it lightly. We don't have to pick up our pen between every letter. The message of love flows through our money. There is always a danger to freedom though. It's easy to get sloppy in our writing, to fall back into old ways so that the writing of our lives becomes illegible. This is what happened to the Corinthian church. They believed the gospel, But their way of life, including their use of money, made the gospel illegible to the surrounding world. They thought that the gospel of grace meant they could forget the law, do whatever they want. The Corinthians had a saying in their community, even all things are lawful. The NIV translates it as I have the right to do anything. And that's a bold thing to say, especially when you're talking about a community that includes a man who is unashamedly sleeping with his mother-in-law others who are participating in pagan worship feasts. You have rich people who are eating so much at the communion meal that there's nothing left for the poor. For them, all things are lawful. And amazingly, Paul doesn't dispute this statement because in truth, we are free from the law under Christ. We are justified by faith in Christ and not by works. The old covenant is closed. It's fulfilled and ended by Jesus. We are new covenant people. So regarding money, we don't have to tithe. We don't have to keep the Sabbath. We don't have to release debt every seven years. There's no limit on how much money we can earn or save or spend. In Christ, because salvation is by grace through faith, not of works, one can say, 
all things are lawful. But Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians how that doesn't mean all things are good. So 1 Corinthians 6, 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. In chapter 10, verse 23, he repeats it. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So as we move from the Old Testament into the New Testament and into the era of the church, we discover a great deal of freedom, freedom in all areas, including freedom in our use of money and possessions. The Corinthians were using their freedom to justify a whole host of sinful behavior. And Paul could have responded by putting them back under the law and said something like, clearly, you can't handle this freedom. So let's pull out the old rule book again. I'm going to put you back in chains for your own good. But that's not what he does. He resists the temptation to reassert the law, which would corrupt grace. Instead, just like Jesus did in Matthew 6, he calls them to the better way, God's ways. Paul urges the Galatians, chapter 5, verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Verse 13, for you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we could stop here, love others, but using this freedom is complex. Love is hard, which is why for our last week, I want to focus on 1 Corinthians, particularly chapters 8 to 10. Up to this point in the story, we've thought about money in fairly clear either or terms uh, so that I can either do what's right or do what's wrong. And so at the beginning of the story, Eve could listen to the serpent or listen to God. Uh, Abraham could be like Melchizedek or be like Sodom. Uh, you either obey the law or you don't. You're either wise or a fool in Proverbs. You either serve God or you serve money in the Sermon on the Mountain. You either love your neighbor or you don't. But in 1 Corinthians, it's not so clear what love looks like because the church now lives in a pluralistic society. Under the old covenant, Israel was fairly self-contained and even Jesus mostly taught Jews. As the church begins to move out, though, in obedience to the Great Commission, they find themselves living among very different peoples. Uh, the Corinthian Christians were still very much embedded in the diverse societies they came from, whether Jewish or Gentile. They also were themselves a diverse group, a pluralistic society with different backgrounds and experiences represented. Uh, some were Jewish, some were Greek. And in those kinds of situations where I'm called to love God and love a multitude of people, different people, determining what is loving and faithful is challenging. It often involves triangulating between multiple factors. And Paul here teaches us how to do just that. First Corinthians 8 begins, now concerning food offered to idols. Members of the Corinthian church were having an argument, and so they literally wrote a letter asking Paul to solve it for them. Uh, here's the problem. In the Gentile world, food and worship were entangled. We live in a secular society which likes to keep religion out of the public sphere in theory. Uh, we don't have to wrestle with too many religious idolatry when we go to the grocery store or whatever, but that was not the case in pagan Rome. 
Uh, visitors to Corinth's central market area in Paul's day would find themselves surrounded by temples to Hermes, Poseidon, Heracles, Apollo, the imperial cult, others. And the meat for sale in the market was actually leftover portions from idol sacrifices. Temples themselves were also community hubs, uh, not just places of worship, but where political, social, and business meetings happened, making them a lot like restaurants. And this created a conflict for Christians. As disciples of Christ, they were forbidden from participating in idol worship, and yet they still needed access to the market in order to live in Corinth. And importantly, they needed to live in Corinth, they needed access to the market to be faithful to Jesus because Jesus had commissioned them to live as witnesses and missionaries to the nations. And you can't do that without living in cities, without engaging the markets, without continuing to participate in local guild meetings and attend family celebrations, all of which happened in and around temples. They needed to be there and God wanted them there. But how could they be there faithfully when the market was so marked by idolatry. There was disagreement in the church on how to answer this question, on whether and how one could eat meat without becoming an idol worshiper. And so you had four groups. Uh, one uh, group believed you couldn't eat any meat that had been involved in temple sacrifices. You had to write it off altogether. And so all that meat was off limits. That's group one. Group two, uh, some people thought you could eat the meat if you bought it at the market, but that you couldn't eat it in the temple. You could only eat it at home. Uh, then there was a third group who thought you could eat meat in the temple in some situations when the meal was more social than religious. Um, so if, if there was a family celebration or a wedding or something like that, you could go and eat in the temple. You just couldn't participate in the worship portion of the eating. And then last, there was a fourth group, and uh, that was the members who believed they could fully participate in temple life, even joining in worship pagan celebrations. Because after all, all things are lawful, and an idol has no real existence, 1 Corinthians 8, 4. It's pretend. What's the big deal? Now, in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul clearly agrees with group three. Idols have no real existence. Pagan temples are just buildings. There's no problem with eating food that was once used in a religious ritual. There's no problem with eating food in a building that is often used in religious ritual. Where Paul draws the line, though, is actually participating in the religious ritual. That's too far. So he's with group three. And in a legalistic world, that would be it. Conversation closed, uh, moving on to the next subject, everybody be like Paul, group three wins. But in the kingdom, where love is the rule, love is more complicated than law. Using money ethically is not just about what lines you can't cross. Love asks questions, love listens and ponders, love takes in its surroundings. And so rather than reassert the law, Paul takes the Corinthians on a journey, letting them into his thinking about love and ethics, the kinds of questions that he asks in these situations. Because for Paul, his love for God and his love for others both frees him and constrains him. And that's hard for us to live in a tension 
where we're freed and constrained. Our culture loves freedom. You do you. It also loves constraint, forcing agreement, punishing dissent, cancel culture. But true love does both and often does it simultaneously. Let's take the love of God first. First, the love of God grants the Corinthians great freedom. They are free to eat meat sacrificed to idols. So verse 4, chapter 8, verse 4 through 6. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, lowercase g, lowercase l, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so our love for God diminishes the power of lesser so-called gods. We can eat meat sacrificed to idols because idols don't matter, even if they're real. And Paul seems to imply that on some level uh, there are uh, lowercase gods and lowercase lords. Yet for us, there is really only one God that matters. And so they are free to eat meat almost in uh, mockery of the lowercase gods. It's hard to overestimate what a big deal this is for Jews to suddenly be allowed to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Paul, who grew up as a Pharisee, now able to eat bacon and whatever else he wants. Skipping ahead to chapter 10, though, Paul warns the Corinthians how the love of God not only frees them, but should also constrain them. They are free to eat the meat. They are free to eat meat in the temple at a social event but they are not free to eat meat in the context of a worship service. Because although idols are not gods, they are something. Just as the Lord is present in communion, so too something is present in idol worship. And that something is demonic. 1 Corinthians 10, 19 to 22. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? That's a wild statement and surely offensive to billions of people who practice other religions. Paul is saying that not only are other religions false, they are the product of demons. And that is the wider, what the wider Bible teaches. It makes complete sense within the Christian story. It should affect our interaction with the world, mostly giving us great sympathy and compassion, a sense of evangelistic urgency to rescue people from the worship of demons. Um, but it is admittedly hard in a global city to say that. It's a longer conversation. Uh, however, the moral of the story here uh, for our purposes is be careful that you don't fall into idolatry. It's not as simple as saying all things are lawful an idol is nothing. I can do what I want. An idol isn't what people say it is, but it isn't nothing. The spiritual world is real. So you can eat meat that was used in the worship of idols, but you cannot yourself participate in the worship. That's how to apply the love of God to eating meat sacrificed to idols. 
recognizing and experiencing the great deal of freedom that we have in the gospel, but not complete freedom, right? God is still a jealous God. He still wants to be chief among us. And so that's really important when we think about money, when Jesus says you cannot serve God and money. He doesn't mean that we should write off money altogether and not use it ever, but we can't serve it in the same way that we serve God. He has to uh, win out always. So of the four groups in the Corinthian church, group three wins the argument. But we're not done yet. It's not enough to just consider love for God. We have to also apply love for neighbor. And Paul shows how he does that here. So 1 Corinthians 8, you can eat the meat, you are free. But in verse 7, he begins, however, not all possess this knowledge. Some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Again, affirming his position in verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. It doesn't matter. But verse 9, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. A quick note, this is not someone who's simply offended by your freedom. This is someone who is tempted by your freedom, and that's different. This is someone who deep down believes that any meat eaten that was sacrificed to idols or any meat eaten within a temple is eaten in worship of idols. And he is not going to judge you. You don't really care. You just stand before the Lord. That's not the problem. The problem is if he will be tempted to join you. And so we must be very careful that we don't shame or guilt or pressure this person to go against their conscience. We must help them protect their weak conscience, even if it's wrong. In Texas, a friend of ours didn't celebrate Halloween. And there are lots of Christians who don't celebrate Halloween for all kinds of uh, reasons, good and um not great, but for her, it was because she grew up with a parent who dabbled in the occult. And so little kids dressed up as witches weren't cute to her. Uh, she grew up with a witch. Uh, Ouija boards weren't innocent fun. And while I don't know about now, maybe her conscience has shifted, but at the time, it would have been wrong for her to participate in Halloween. And as her church family, it would have been wrong for us to encourage her to participate in Halloween, to tell her it's no big deal. And maybe, depending on the circumstance, some years, maybe we actually shouldn't participate either in solidarity with her because we love her. Because after all, it's no big deal. We often don't realize how that logic works both ways. If it's no big deal for her to participate in Halloween, then it's no big deal for me not to participate in Halloween. If it's no big deal for her to drink, then it's not a big deal for me not to drink. If it's no big deal for her to watch that movie, then it's no big deal for me not to watch that movie. Verse 8 is so important here for our use of freedom. Verse 8, 
food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. The Corinthians thought they were better off because of their freedom. Their freedom increased their honor in their own minds. But Paul says no. Their freedom actually increased their responsibility. We live in a culture that so esteems individual rights and freedoms, so much so that denying ourselves often feels wrong. It feels inauthentic, not true to ourselves, repressive. Why would I say no to myself for the sake of someone else, especially when I'm right? And Paul's reply is basically that you can say no to yourself because Christ said no to himself for you. And Christ said no to himself for your friend, too, for that brother, that sister, that neighbor. Why would you stand in the way of them believing that? Is that what your freedom is for, distracting people from God's glory? Or is your freedom to point people to God's glory? Chapter 9 in 1 Corinthians is a bit of a long parenthesis in Paul's argument, in which Paul describes all the rights he's given up for the Corinthians' sake. And so he's not asking them to do anything more for others than he has done for them. Uh, Paul forsook marriage for the church so he could give himself fully to God's people. He refused income from the church so it was clear that he wasn't preaching for money. He could have gotten married. He could have asked for a salary. But in verse 12, he says, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Verse 19, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Is this hypocritical of Paul? Is this inauthentic of him to follow different ethics with different people? Not at all, because the through line in every situation remains the same. Love for God and love for others. 1 Corinthians 10.23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And Paul wants to build others up. That is the aim of his life. And so verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the group ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Again, Paul's with group three. Group three are the ones who are right, and for their rightness, they are given freedom to enjoy all that God offers. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. With God, you and your money and possessions are set free. But then he calls them to leverage that freedom, not simply for their own good, but for the good of others. Verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. 
For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. This versatility is why Paul is team three, not just because they're right, though they are, but because it's the people in group three who are able to minister and love the most people. They can love the people with weak consciences, with strong consciences, with no conscience. People in group one and two who are being extra careful in regards to holiness have unnecessarily limited themselves in their ability to love. Because they cannot violate their conscience, that would be sin. Whatever is not done from faith is sin, Romans 14. The eating of meat sacrificed to idols isn't sin, but violating one's conscience is sin. Again, this is why it's so beneficial when we rightly calibrate our conscience. If Paul's only concern was avoiding idolatry at all costs, he could have sided with group one, the supersensitive conscience. That would be the easy route. Lowest common denominator, just to be safe, let's all be like group one and avoid the marketplace altogether. Since it doesn't matter whether we eat meat or not, let's just get rid of it at all. Paul doesn't do that, though, because if he did, it would unnecessarily consign countless people to hell. He would be abandoning the marketplace and so abandoning the people who use the marketplace, which if it's necessary to avoid sin, so be it. That would be sad, but right. But if it's not necessary, it's not just sad, it's a tragedy. I grew up in the South, and this is the tragedy of so many churches giving up entirely on bars and alcohol. Uh, while it's understandable in a lot of circumstances, I grew up in a teetotaling home because of alcoholism in my family, um, my extended family. Uh, but when an entire church when an entire quadrant of the Christian world forbids the drinking of alcohol uh, just to be safe, it drastically reduces their ability to reach people who drink alcohol. Again, if that's what's required from Scripture, okay, but if it's not required by Scripture, it's tragic. God calls us to be witnesses to his gospel out and about in the world, and we want to be witnesses because we love him. And we want him to be glorified. And because we love the lost and we want them to hear the gospel and be saved. And so for love of God and love others, I want to be in as many spaces as God allows me to be. In 1 Corinthians, Paul encourages us to have rightly calibrated consciences, which allow us to take advantage of all the freedom we have so that we can love Jews, Greeks, and the church. At the same time, we do live in an idolatrous culture and are ourselves prone to idolatry. If my conscience is not sensitive enough, it endangers my soul and the souls of others. And I wonder if this is not the more relevant warning for Christians in San Francisco. Uh, we tend to be more libertine than legalistic generally, um, our community, but you know yourself. Uh, regardless, though, we have to ask these questions because a bar, a marketplace, a company, an industry, any place humans are, these are places where idol worship is happening. 
And we must be careful not to engage in this worship ourselves or even to appear to engage in it. It's not worth it um, because of the danger it puts us in, the danger it puts others in. But we don't want to abandon industries entirely. We won't want to separate entirely because there are people in those spaces who need to hear Jesus, who need to hear the gospel, and we're the ones to tell them. Love for God and love for others. This is what Paul advocates. He could care less about the actual eating of idol meat. What he cares about is the glory of God in the redemption of as many people as possible. Now, what does all this have to do with money? Loving God and others with our money should lead to both freedom and constraint in our decisions. So Christians should be people who feel free to spend where others don't feel free because of the gospel. They're not afraid of overstepping, crossing lines because they love God. They know that God loves him, not for what they do, but because of grace. And so there's not anxiety about always doing what's right, um, spending exactly uh, what we should do. Um, it, we're released from guilt and shame. We're released from fear. And that allows us to experience freedom and to use that freedom generously for the sake of others. This freedom enables us to be in all kinds of spaces, just like Jesus was in all kinds of spaces. With Jews and Samaritans and Gentiles, we spend time with Baptists and atheists, progressives and conservatives, straight, gay, rich, poor. The love of Christ in the gospel frees us to love all people everywhere to the glory of God. And that leads to a happier life, a more joyful life. We experience freedom in the use of our money, more freedom than others. The love of Christ also constrains us. Christians should be a people who at times don't spend where others spend because of the gospel. There are going to be some industries, businesses, products, activities, even relationships that we decline to engage. First, because we love God and we want to protect our love of God from any and all uh, competing loves from idolatrous activities, which Paul says are animated by demons. Don't want anything to do with that. But second, there are also times we don't spend where others spend because we love people and we never want to prize a temporal good, a temporal freedom over the eternal good of others. So that even if we are technically free to enjoy that thing, we are happy to forsake our freedom, to restrain ourselves for the sake of another's salvation. These are the kinds of questions we need to be asking ourselves about our consumption, what we eat and drink, the media we consume, the activities we engage, not from a place of anxiety, um, concern to do what's right, but from a place of desire, because we truly do love God and others. Uh, Paul isn't overthinking it. Neither are we. Our culture truly worships money and depends on our consumption as Christians for that money. The meat sacrificed to idols in Corinth, it's not so different from what is coming from boardrooms and malls and entertainment. Um, it is mostly idol worship. Uh, for some of us, it is idol worship. And so we need to be ready to restrain ourselves. Uh, when was the last time that you held back from doing something, from buying something, from joining something out of your love for God and his glory, out of a desire to be a faithful witness to Jesus? We need to be mindful of what we consume with our money beyond whether it's explicitly right or wrong. We can't just ask if something is right or wrong. Uh, Vaughn Roberts has a really helpful 
decision tree on First Corinthians 8 through 10. And he just has a series of questions um, that you can see on the screen. Does the Bible allow it? No, don't do it. Yes, move to the next question. So does the Bible allow it? Yes. Does my conscience allow it? If your conscience doesn't allow it, don't do it. If your conscience allow it, move to the next set of questions. And so does the Bible allow it? Does my conscience allow it? Three further questions. What is the effect on other Christians? Because love is more important than knowledge. Second, what is the effect on non-Christians? The gospel is more important than rights. And third, what is the effect on my spiritual life? Because spiritual health is more important than freedom. This is what love requires. These kinds of conversations, these kinds of decisions. And for the Christian, love is not a burden. It's our delight. Is love your delight? Do you adore God? Do you adore Jesus? Do you love your brothers and sisters? Do you love your neighbors and co-workers? Are you willing to give up your freedom for their eternal good? Love was Jesus' delight. He loved to love you. Jesus was the eternal son of God, very God from very God, completely and utterly free to do whatever he wanted. And with his freedom, he chose from love first to create us, and then even after our sin to redeem us, to leave behind his freedom, to constrain his freedom, his place, his riches, his rights, by taking on human flesh, taking the form of a servant. And then if that weren't enough of a constraint, he sacrificed his own life on the cross. He showed his love for us by limiting himself to the uttermost, even unto death, so that we could be saved, forgiven, redeemed, and experience freedom ourselves. What a gift. And now, with our money and possessions and everything we have, we are further given the joyful opportunity to imitate Jesus and do the same. What a privilege. So much better than anything else we could do with our wealth. May God reveal to us the lasting joy and happiness and satisfaction of laying down our freedoms in love for him and others. Let's pray.